Cash Flow Diary Podcast, episode 493. Welcome to yet another exciting episode of the Cash Flow Diary Podcast. The podcast that teaches you insider tips, tactics, and strategies for creating leveraged streams of cash flow into your life. Learn from top-performing entrepreneurs, business owners, investors, and thought leaders from across the globe as they share their secrets to success. Like what you learn on this and other Cashflow Diary podcast episodes? Go to learninvestingnow.com and sign up to receive powerful tips and information that will help you succeed as an entrepreneur and investor. Now, here's your host, investor, entrepreneur, business owner, educator, speaker, author, and master facilitator of Robert Kiyosaki's Cashflow Game, Jay Massey. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Cashflow Diary Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Massey, and I'm glad that you are here today because as you grow and grow through your own business, there are many different levels. In fact, you have heard me say, if you've listened for a while, you've heard the following words, where you start isn't necessarily where you stay. And that's a good thing because you should be growing and going in many, 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 many different places as an entrepreneur. And most importantly, for those of you of the real estate persuasion, I know that a lot of you have the desire to be a part of various different types of commercial real estate. Now, with that being said, I know myself that that was kind of my path. I mean, I started with single family houses and then, you know, buy one at a time, then you buy hundreds at a time and then you buy notes and then you buy lots of those and create those. And then you learn all kinds of creative acquisitions. You raise capital, you do apartment buildings. And in my case, cell phone towers and commercial property are pretty, pretty awesome and something that I personally like. Now, many of you you may like some of those same things. Maybe you want to have access to the apartment buildings or the commercial buildings or self-storage or just so many different opportunities. There's so many ways to skin the real estate cat. Yet, you are often presented with a problem. And that problem comes in the form of way more commas and zeros than you may be able to actually obtain by yourself. Well, here's the thing. What if you had a little help? What if there was a collection of you who were out there going out there to do it and you could do so with people who had nothing better to do but then to watch over the investment and make sure that the returns are what they needed to be? Well, today's guest is the founder of Cashflow Connections. He is none other than Hunter Thompson and he's a private equity firm with over 250 investors. Now, here's the thing. Think about this. What if you knew someone who has raised $20 million and purchased over $35 million worth of real estate inside of one year. Wouldn't that be awesome? I bet you would want to know how he did it. More importantly, who, how you can participate and definitely what is it going to take for you to participate in the future that they've got started. So here's the thing. Let's get ready to take some notes. Let's get ready to listen. Let's get ready to learn and most definitely love Hunter Thompson. Hunter, how are you doing? Awesome. Thanks again for that intro. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. You are quite welcome. And in rare form, you're actually not that far from me, which is not common these days. Most times the people are in a whole different set of the globe. So it feels actually kind of weird to to actually not be doing this in person. 
Yeah, no, I relate to that. I think a lot of people in California are looking for the hills all the time due to a million, million factors. But look, man, I like it here. I'm willing to pay to play, so I'm staying. Yeah, I, no comment. I call it a sunshine tax, and I happily pay it. So with this being your first time here, I must ask you the same question I tend to ask everybody else. You ready? Absolutely. All right. I tend to look at today's entrepreneurs a lot like yesterday's superheroes, you know, Batman, Robin, Wonder Woman, etc. Because I think entrepreneurs and superheroes have a ton of things in common. Chief among them, as an entrepreneur, occasionally I can imagine myself flying around town, using our products and services and saving our customers one at a time. But also, like a superhero, an entrepreneur has a beginning. So my question to you is as follows. Before, you know, being featured in Forbes, Globe Street, Inside Self Storage, before doing your syndications, before the investors, before Cashflow Connections, and before even your podcast in iTunes, what we want to know is, who is Hunter Thompson? <laughs> yeah, well, I think the entrepreneur thing is something that was on very, very quickly. As soon as I understood really what money was and that you could, <laughs> you know, identify what supply demand equilibriums were and take advantage of those. I remember being five, my parents lived next to a popular concert venue and there was a crazy parking situation. And I realized, look, we can just sell parking in our backyard for 10 or $20 a piece. I'll split the profits with my mom. And as soon as I realized I can make like three or $4 an hour sitting out there all day doing that, I was like, all I got to do is work 80 hours a day and I'm going to be rich eventually. I was just <laughs> obsessed with that. And like, I remember getting my first hundred dollars and making that last deposit in the bank account and being like, man, this is so much fun. And, and it's really been like that ever since. But um, a lot of ups and downs, of course, like most entrepreneurs, but, you know, from a very early age, uh, really obsessed with, you know, supplying uh, customer needs. OK, I got to know, how does a five year old convince their mother to let strangers park in their backyard? You know, I think part of that was that we had to create a sign that was going to attract passerbys. And I think creating the sign was like the artist side of her was like, oh, that's like the point here. We're going to create this interesting sign, have people come out. And so that was what we got to work on together is the segue into this overwhelming commercial business we turned her backyard into. So not only did you learn to leverage resources that weren't your own, you got someone else. You got labor at the beginning of five. This is amazing. Okay. <laughs> I like it. I like it. So clearly this was just, we'll, we'll call it the, the natural gift. So take us on this journey. How do we go from uh, <laughs> selling your own backyard uh, to syndications and private equity firm? There's got to yeah, be a journey I mean, there. I'll do I'll do like the, the briefest version of the journey. But I mean, generally speaking, in high school, um, I did event production and we created uh, DJ events for high schools, basically in Memphis, Tennessee, which is where I'm from. Most of the schools, you couldn't bring people from other schools to your proms. And so we created events where people from any school could come and their private events with security um, had success with that, did a little bit of that in college as well in college something really fascinating happened. Um, I'm actually, like I said, from Memphis, about five and a half hours away from Memphis. Um, someone 
a random guy uh, paid $68 to enter a poker tournament. He won that poker tournament, which got him a ticket to another poker tournament, which is about a $200 buy-in. And he won that tournament, which got him a free buy-in to the main event of poker, which is about a $10,000 buy-in. And here's the thing. Some of you guys know where the story is going. He won the main event and won $1.3 or $1.6 million. And his true legal name is Chris Moneymaker. And the reason this is part of my story is that when that happened, I had been playing poker recreationally in high school, but when that happened, um, internationally, poker blew up, especially in the online community, and it created a overwhelming opportunity to take poker seriously. I got a coach, I read many, many books on the topic, and that was kind of my summer job through college. And that was actually one of the reasons I moved out to California was to pursue that. Um, I was playing at a level of, for those of you that are familiar, at 3.6 and then later 5.10 or $1,000 cash, uh, cash game buy-ins. And I moved to California to play the Commerce Casino, which is the largest poker room in the world. Fell out of love of poker, but fell in love with California. And that timing worked out very well, which is when the 2008 happened. And so that opportunity with poker had been kind of played out um, for a variety of reasons. The games got really challenging, and then the United States government made it illegal to play online. And so right around that time is when real estate market collapsed. And that's really when I started to go all in on financial assets. And we can go into some of those details. But um, generally speaking, um, poker was the reason that I was able to you know, not get a typical job uh, during college. <laughs> okay. You do realize that is hyper unique right now. <laughs> I'm just like, okay, did he say? I'm like, I was waiting for like a punchline or you go, no. But he's like, no, I I, I went to I poker. Okay. Yeah. Was not, I did remarkable. not see that coming. Did not see that coming. So, well, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, just to add to that, it's interesting. I think a lot of there was for people that are in the community um, back then, it was a fascinating time. I mean, there was no better way to spend if you had any kind of understanding of money or being able to make decisions with limited amounts of information or just, you know, having the concept of, OK, if this is something that I can focus my efforts towards, it's going to create a really interesting lifestyle for me, particularly with the online component because of the fact that you could play at your own schedule. And so for a college kid, this is basically the best of all worlds. And, and plus, it's fun to own people's souls and take their money. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> You're not competitive at all. I like it. <laughs> this is good. Okay, so I've got questions now then. So um, what? I'm, now I'm actually kind of curious. What on earth were you doing even in college? What were you studying? Did you even bother finishing? I mean, there's so many. Yeah, things absolutely. And, and like, just to, just to clarify, I mean, playing poker was something that it was the kind of thing that it would be a good a good job uh, for someone that was in college. But you know, my ability to generate income changed significantly once I started to understand the real estate market, and it wouldn't be able to replace my income at this you know anything close to that. Um, but it was a good way to kind of get through. Um, now, having said that, uh, I was actually, could you just repeat the question real quick as as far as Sure. Did you say what you just said. No, no. I'm I'm just curious as to you know why did, if you why did you finish college and how on oh, earth yeah. did this come? <laughs> I mean, I just find this is an interesting. No one has ever said to me, "Yeah, I got into real estate by playing poker." So this is new. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm now yeah. curious. 
I mean, I studied uh, political science and economics in college, and so the the segue wasn't really that. It was really the the ability to make decisions with a limited amount of information. And I, because of the fact that I learned at a young age to play the game um, and understand that the the chips on the table were to be thought of as chips and not as money. It makes that co- that emotional component um, a lot easier. Now that gets you to a certain level, which will get you to that intermediate level. But getting up to the more advanced level, which is that three, six, five, ten, which is kind of the medium overall, but I'd say intermediate, advanced. Um, you need to take it seriously as you would take a business. So you know, there's a lot of people out there that think of poker playing kind of as a generic game. If you're dedicating 40, 50, 60 hours a week to your your craft, you're going to be good at it if it's a lucrative craft. And, and it certainly was back then. Um, like I said, once that opportunity changed, the United States government made it illegal. A lot of the people in that community had to make the decision. Do they want to stop now, get a basically a quote real job, or are they going to move to Canada or Mexico? And so a lot of the people that I knew that I played with back then made that decision to move to either one of those countries. And that actually also created an interesting opportunity because there was a massive fraud in that business. One of the largest online uh, poker rooms ended up being a Ponzi scheme. And so there were all, the, the government asked these poker rooms to give the money back to their people so they can cash themselves out when they made it illegal. And so everyone received their money except for if you had money in this large casino, you didn't get anything. And then all the lawsuits started happening. So all these poker players went from making, let's say, five or 10000 or $20,000 a month to not only did they lose their ability to generate income, they lost their portfolio. And then they had to move out of the side of the country to start to restart. But this is a really unique opportunity as an investor because there was all these poker players out there that had a significant track record that you could prove through online metrics and they needed money to get started again. And so, you know, one of the first passive investments I made was in a friend of mine that I knew personally, but also in the poker world and was able to quote back him and take a percentage of his gains. And so, <laughs> you know, it, it's a fascinating story, but for those of the, the people that were, were seeing it happen, there's really nothing like it. I mean, it was a billion, billion, billion dollar industry just exploded out of nowhere because this guy quote luck boxed his way into $1.6 million and everyone thought that they could do it. Right, right. Now, what's interesting about that is that uh, I'm sure someone said, oh, that's what I'll do. I'll back a poker player. But you had the ability, because of your history, to more or less do your due diligence, <laughs> if you 100%. will. 100%. You knew 100%. what to look for and to make that happen. But what I want to talk about is you said something that I think is very key. And I think it's actually preventing a number of entrepreneurs from being able just to start their own business, regardless of industry. You said, and I quote, make decisions with very limited information. Now, you practiced it in poker. I want to hear how it's made a difference in what it is that you do today. Yeah, I mean, I kind of a segue into the the world of investing and, and raising capital and investing passively. Right when the 2008 thing happened, I was very fortunate because I was transitioning out of the poker world, but I had not invested into financial assets significantly. So when the stock market took a bath, I wasn't really uh, hurting. I saw it as an opportunity, uh, just studying economics, being able to make those decisions and, and invest when things were a little bit uncomfortable. I was all in when 2008 took place. 
um, originally just because of the access to limited information, uh, the stock market was my number one strategy at first, just focusing on a typical uh, value type of investments, not day trading, but looking at the Buffett model and trying to identify which companies I thought were going to come out of the Great Recession. And I had some success at that because virtually anyone that was investing at that time would have success. But through the years, I realized that most people, when you really try to get them down to what they're trying to accomplish financially, they're looking for very similar things. Uh, most of the time, they're looking for predictable outcomes and cash flow to pay off their expenses. That's basically how people define retirement. Well, <laughs> right. the problem is that stocks are not a very good vehicle to accomplish that goal. In fact, I would think that's a very indirect way to accomplish that goal. You have to have a massive portfolio to generate the type of cash flow that most people would need to do. So as I was starting to have that realization, something really interesting happened. And this is something that a lot of people don't talk about. For me, this was the absolute last straw moment, which was in 2010. And this was during the European debt crisis. So very similar to what happened in the United States, but in Europe, the central banks of Europe froze up, a complete lack of liquidity in the market. And I remember watching CNBC and they were talking about everyone was focusing on the Greece bond yields. And they're saying if the bond yields, the 10 year was below 7% at the end of the day, the S&P 500 was going to be fine. But if it went above 7%, the S&P 500 was going to collapse. And I just remember having this realization how is it the case that everyone is talking about the Greece bond yields playing a significant role in my financial well-being? How is that possibly the case? And how could I have mitigated that challenge? It's impossible to think that a single person would be able to do that. By the way, the Greece bond yields ended up surpassing 7%. They went above 7% and above 25% and above 35%. And it was it's just unbelievable volatility in the US markets. And that's when I really started to transition my portfolio into focusing on uh, much more predictable outcomes and simple investments that a, a single person or a, fall, a small family office could conduct due diligence on. Yeah. And, and it, it, there's that feeling of control um, that, you know, at, at the beginning, we, I guess you can get enamored with the idea and it sounds sexy and it's fun. But then there comes this point of where you're just like, I, it's bigger than what I can handle, so to speak. And when you have that, like what you keep calling predictable outcomes, that's where peace of mind. That's what I call it. <laughs> exactly. It's like, yeah. So you, you mentioned something that I think is uh, it, it very germane for everyone to understand, because you, you mentioned that leveraging, you know, equities can be a challenge because you have to have such a big pile of them in order to even come close to generating the amount of uh, income uh, that someone might need to qualify for whatever their version of retirement is. Yet, uh, you found other ways to create what I like to call streams of income. And I often tell people, you don't need piles, you need streams. And I would love to hear your thoughts on on such a thing. Yeah. So, I mean, really, at the time, especially, it was just there was such an opportunity in real estate by any normal metric that you could follow. If you hadn't taken a complete bath and had your shirt taken off of your back during the correction, every metric, including cap rates in, in terms of the valuations and everything, there was just an opportunity. And so to answer your question directly, I saw an opportunity to source investment opportunities mostly tied to liquidity at first, and basically take a percentage of the proceeds of those investments. Um, the first investments I did this on were hard money loans. 
So hmm. we identified some properties or at least markets that historically were very non-volatile. And because mm-hmm. there was incredible lack of liquidity in the market, we could loan 70% of purchase price or 50% of after repaired value and still get 13, 14, 15% interest rate from operators that were flipping four houses, five houses, 10 houses a month. And so when I'm looking at things on a risk adjusted basis, I just don't know that there's much better way to invest than something like that. And now those investment opportunities aren't really around anymore because the market's corrected. But at the time I was like, this basically has the risk profile of a CD or a bond and the return profile of a, of a high risk investment, a leveraged real estate investment, but it's not leveraged, it's collateralized. So I found that very, very compelling. And what I would do is um, basically take a percent or a percent and a half um, and get a percentage of the proceeds derived from the performance of that note. Mm-hmm. And like I said, um, the strategies have changed significantly since then, but that was kind of the first introduction into passive cash flow that I experienced. Perfect. So l- let's tackle something that I know a number of listeners are, are currently dealing with because, you know, at the beginning of the day, Hunter, the, everyone wrestles with this one question in some way, shape, or form. Who's going to believe in me, trust in me, give me money, let me, quote unquote, do this type of deal because I am, I, some people, they say, I, I, I'm 60, it's too late. Others say, I'm 20 and it's no one's going to take me seriously. How did you grapple with that? All right, everybody. Thanks for listening and I'm glad that you are enjoying what you are hearing thus far. But here's one of the things that's really important. One of the most important things that you can do is get started. One of the things that I've said before, and I say again, once you get started, stay started. But more importantly, there can be lots of roadblocks to getting started. So what we're going to do is we're going to remove one of those roadblocks for you and make it a little bit easier. Because the thing that I don't want to stop you is thinking, do I need a local number? How about a long distance number? Or should it be 800? How on earth am I going to make that happen so that people can contact me as I'm out there building my business, making my cash flow grow, but most importantly, understanding that it doesn't have to be difficult. Many of you may know, but if you don't, there's a company out there by the name of Grasshopper. And what I want you to do is I want you to go over to trygrasshopper.com forward slash cash flow diary. Grasshopper is the entrepreneur's phone system. It works like a traditional phone system, but requires no hardware to purchase, no software to install. It's just the number that flat works. So if you are out there building that distributed workforce across many different locations, it's a way for you to still go out there and make your number be unified, simple, easy to use, something we've been using for quite some time. So again, go over to trygrasshopper.com forward slash cashflow diary. Now, let's get back to the rest of the story. Yeah, that's a really good question. And, and I'll be honest. I mean, I don't have a lot of skills. I have very, very limited number of skills. But one skill that I can say that I'm actually very good at is identifying really good people to make a bet on. And when it comes to establishing a track record, that is the absolute key skill to have. So when I was talking about, you know, identifying markets and this and that and the other thing, I was very, very fortunate because of the timing in the market. When I moved to California, not only were there's such an opportunity in real estate, but going to networking events, uh, the mood was very somber and the meetings were very small, but they were comprised of individuals that were able to weather that storm. 
And so through their guidance, you know, we created a couple of structures that I think were really favorable. So um, when it comes to building a track record, I identified some sponsors that, like I said, were very proficient in their particular market, had a significant upper hand in terms of operations and know-how and systems. And I leveraged their systems. Remember, I didn't say that I was the one flipping the houses. It was them that was flipping the houses. I was the one that was identifying them and saying, look, you don't have to trust my track record. It's, it's, (laughs) this is my first deal. This is my first month, but I think this deal is going to make sense. Here are the systems that are in place and that have been used for many, many years. And here's an attorney and a CPA that are verifying the claims that I'm making as well. And so that was, you know, how I was able to shortcut that as opposed to taking years and years doing things with my own capital before uh, making that step into, you know, passive income. So that now this brings up the the question of the hour, the the central focus of your business, because people are then going, well, that that sounds like something I could do, but Hunter, where does the money come from? Yeah, it's a really good question, and you know, it really, I'll, I'll tell a, a quick story that'll kind of put things in perspective. I started investing, you know, from my own portfolio and from just friends and family uh, very early on, in, you know, 2011, 2012, made my first commercial real estate investment in mobile home parks in 2012. Um, two years later, after it was clear that the thesis that we created and the data that we created that thesis around was all lining up quite perfectly and we were seeing the results we anticipated. I decided to start to really bring on more investors and create an infrastructure in which to do that. So the way that we did this is we created a syndication and pooled investor capital together. That was the idea. And I was able to negotiate with the sponsor that if we could raise a total of a half a million dollars, that they would give us a more favorable rate and therefore we wouldn't really have to charge our investors. They would basically compensate us for some of the duties related to um, bringing in that capital and other things as well. So what I did was I had a live event and I basically told all my friends and family, everyone I knew to come to this live event and I was going to explain to them, you know, what I had been doing for the last couple of years and the results that I had and, and the opportunity to invest in a similar type of investment structure. And so a lot of people showed up. I think about 30 people showed up to this live event and the total dollar raised from this live event was zero, zero dollars. Perfect. (laughs) Hold on. Hold on. I think everybody needs to hear that clearly because you had a lot of expectations wrapped up in that. You were looking forward to something happen. and, and, And so, and how much was raised? Oh, zero. zero. Literally, from the live event alone, Perfect. which I, anticip- I I handed out a piece of paper at the live event for people to let me know how much they were interested in investing, and none of the pieces of paper had a dollar on them. It's not an exaggeration. Um, and I can go into so much detail about things leading up to that and the many reasons that I was not only expecting to blow $500,000 out of the wall. I was very confident this is all going to be very easy. I mean, I had had some professional wins leading up to this point, which I just assumed business was easy in general Mm. Um, because I had success at poker. I had success at that company that I started in high school and college. I just assumed that this is the way things worked. Absolutely. All the time. That's all you have. Why would anything else happen? (laughs) Exactly. So I had to scratch and claw and we got eventually got to about $340,000 and it was coming towards the end of the month, which is we had about three months to raise the capital. And by the grace, I mean, there was no explanation for this. I randomly got introduced to someone who actually my CPA's family, they ended up being wildly interested and invested a total of $160,000 in 
unknowingly got us exactly to that half a million dollar mark. <laughs> now, you know, since that time, things have changed significantly in the sense that, you know, last week I got two emails that cumulatively represented about a half a million dollars. And these aren't for people that I've been chasing around. This is just emails that came my way. So the, the, the amount of change and the amount of work and the blood, sweat and the years that have taken place to put me in that position um, have been incredibly significant. But those very, you know, small start and very scary moment for me as an entrepreneur, um, you know, ended up changing over the years. So, and let's talk about that for a moment, because there's a number of people who we, as well, I'll say as entrepreneurs, we can often romanticize this future where everything is perfect. But uh, as I would often say, that we, we have to eat dinner before we get to dessert. And that that process sometimes means there's lots of vegetables on the plate that you, you may not want to consume. So I'm curious, what what was the emotional state either at the end of that meeting and, and how did you manage to, to maintain the correct emotional state, the correct mindset to actually take that first one across the line? Well, yeah, I mean, that's the whole thing, right? So, I mean, I was completely blindsided, to be honest. I, I was not expecting that. I had, in my opinion, I had established a track record and it was already succeeding. I mean, I didn't really have to pitch anything. It was already happening and working. I just wanted, I was excited to share this with people. So the main paradigm that shifted, and this is something that a lot of people can relate to, the reason that this was so unsuccessful is it required a pseudo religious experience to these people that had never been interested in investing these type of investments before. <laughs> it's just someone saying, look, I know you've been hearing everything about finance since you were in high school about investing in the stock market and putting money in your 401k, which you can't control and just simply letting it ride. And over the long term, you're going to 8% return. This 20 or 30 minute presentation was not going to go through the 30 years of indoctrination that these people have had in order to, to wire me a check. And so over the years, I've realized that putting yourself in a position so that rather than you're going around hunting new leads, um, you can be in a position where you're the bear at the end of the river, right? And the salmon fly to you. Not, not, the, not in the such a way that my investors, I eat them or something weird like that. But my point is the investors that I work with are attracted to me because I have created an infrastructure in which to attract them and nurture them and take care of them so that they reinvest for years and years to come. And so, you know, we can talk about some of those systems as well, but that was the main paradigm shift that I had, which was that I thought I was going to go out and change. I'm just smashing my head against a wall trying to figure out why no one was excited as I was. And that's really the reason. <laughs> right. Like, don't you understand what I said? This is amazing. Totally. Like, what is wrong with you? What's wrong with me? Who happened? What did I say? Did I say the wrong thing? We can go through all of that as an entrepreneur because we think our what we have is awesome and it probably is. And there's usually something else that goes wrong. Now, what what I would really like to 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 talk about for a second is more granularly in in what are some of the types of deals that you guys are up to today? Because uh, I, I think it's really important for people to hear that because when I, I know when we say real estate and we get talking about real estate, people really don't know what what exactly like what does that look like? Have I ever passed one of these types of transactions before? How would I identify one? What does that look like for you guys today? Yeah. So, I mean, look, it's all about economics. 
Mm-hmm. Every piece of human action is encompassing an economics. So we have to look at economics to build our investment theses. So don't get me started, I, man. Yeah. <laughs> you can get me all kinds of excited. You want to just go down this economic drain, but go ahead. I'm listening. Well, I, I've got a couple of, of data points that I think are really compelling and people that are investing should be very interested in. Um, number one, I think a lot of people talk about the market cycle. We're currently in our 111th month of the expansionary period since the, the June of 2009 lows. So that is the second longest expansion, you know, from the trough to the peak. That's the second longest in the history of the United States since the Civil War. And the longest ever is 120 months. So if we make it, let's say, next summer Mm -hmm. or so, we're Mm -hmm. going to be there. And that's important to consider. Having said that, markets do not die or come to fruition uh, because of old age Uh, They come to fruition because of mania. So it's important to keep that in mind. But I think that data point shows you because the way that mania happens is a change in mindset where people start to think that this is the new normal. And the reason that happens over time is that people forget. So I don't know that we're quite there yet, just from a not looking at the economic data, just talking about the mindset, because the last correction was so significant and because it involved debt and therefore deleveraging was the way out of that, um, that would be the case. Now, You may say there hasn't been a lot of deleveraging. In fact, we've only gotten more and more and more debt. And that is where things start to get really interesting in terms of what this next correction looks like. Um, Something else I will say is that 50% of the wage earners in the United States are making $30,000 a year. I will say that again. More than half are making less than $30,000 a year and 38% are making less than $20,000 a year. So when I'm looking for investment vehicles, I want to find investment vehicles that are positioned to perform in all stages of the economic climate. Yep. And there are some that historically have been able to do that. And the two that I think are, are most compelling are mobile home parks and self-storage. Yeah. You got me all excited again. <laughs> <laughs> I, yep. Yep. Keep going. I'm Because I, I, those, those two particularly, and again, uh, I obviously we all know I like apartments and cell phone towers, but I have often looked at and go, hmm, that mobile home park and or self storage. I've just never taken the time to develop the resources to manage such a thing. But you have. So I want to hear more. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And we can actually talk about mobile home parks, self storage and multifamily to tie it in together, because I think it's an important conversation to have. So, (laughs) yeah, it's all the same customer. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) So when it comes to mobile home parks, I think people can understand that relatively easily. The worse the economy does, the more demand there is for affordable housing. Right. Now, there's a couple of interesting things about that business, though, which I just, man, I just find hard to find something similar. Um, Number one, in most real estate asset classes, the goal or one of the goals is to have the tenants treat the property like they own it. It really helps you out for a lot of reasons. With mobile home parks, they actually do. So in the investment structure that we have, we own the lot and the tenants own the actual mobile home. Got it. But the home isn't mobile. Um, It costs about $5,000 to move. Right. And in the markets that we invest in, the homes are worth fifteen or maybe even $20,000, meaning that it's not economically viable to do so. The math doesn't make sense at all. Totally. Now, do so, you guys – oh, sorry. I was just no, going to no, say, go do you guys ever actually uh, turn around and buy the buy the homes and lease them back? 
Yes. So sometimes when you buy properties, uh, parks, they will have park owned homes. Right. The goal, the first goal of business is to sell those as quickly as possible to tenants because they're basically cash flow negative. I mean, they should not be included in the value of the property. And there's some argument in the business about this, but generally speaking, I want to invest in properties that have about 20% or less of park owned homes because the quality of the tenant base is so much higher if you're investing in properties where the tenants have the capacity to own the property. Understood, a lot of the horror stories. I, yeah, I, I was just thinking if, if, cause this was one of the ways that I was, I, I tend to like strategize and take numbers to extremes. I was like, well, yes, I want to just make it more possible for each of those tenants to own homes and why not be the the financier uh for those particular coaches as well in this particular case you know create create the possibility for home ownership i guess is really what i'm saying yeah absolutely i mean there is a lot of mechanisms in place to do that in fact warren buffett has a vehicle century 21 as basically dedicated a branch to that specifically the challenge is it is Easier said than done. I think Mm -hmm. the business itself has its own risks that are um, unique and need to be taken seriously. And I think that doing more capital intensive stuff, selling, buying properties that are heavily park owned, you're making the asset class harder than it needs to be. And it's already has a lot of its own challenges. And again, that's just my opinion. I have uh, seen many experienced operators doing much more along the lines of that strategy, buying a property that's 80% park owned and trying to sell them as quickly as possible. Um, you're really getting into an operational nightmare in my opinion, um, but you can make money doing it if you're able to implement it. Understood. Keep going. I like it. Uh, this is good. Cool. So, you know, we've kind of touched on the mobile home park business. Really the key is there is just an unbelievable delta or, or change between markets that you can invest in properties where a nearby two-bedroom B-class apartment may rent for uh, $2,100 a month, and a near three-star mobile home park, which is kind of a comparable product, is $500 a month, $700 a month. So it's like a 3x multiple to your comparable competitor. Mm -hmm. And that just allows you to raise rents pretty significantly over the years, especially when you're dealing with the tenant base that isn't very mobile because they own that property. So there's just a couple of facets of the business that I think are really hard to argue with. Um, Having said that, that is the kind of thing that now that I've said that, everyone that's listening to that knows that. What does that mean? That's really, (laughs) it's not proprietary. It just means that it's a really good thesis, right? And we have to find a operational partner to take advantage of that thesis effectively, but I still think looking at it from a big picture, really, really a lot of good data points in my opinion. Yeah, 100%. And it's the operational, well, and so that everybody knows, it's the operational partner that takes probably the most, I would say it takes the most work uh, to to find the right one. And when you do find the right one or ones, uh, treat them well. <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> Deliver on your promises. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about the self-storage because uh, also something that has been of interest, but again, same exact same scenario in my case. It's like I, I, I can operate apartments. I can operate cell phone towers. I've just not been over. I'm like, I don't want to. Do I want to take that on, too? So uh, I would love to hear your thoughts. Totally. So similarly, I mean, the way that my business is positioned, uh, we identify best in class operating partners to facilitate this. Right. And I think it is absolutely critical when it comes to self storage in particular. 
um, really quickly kind of explaining why they're recession resistant. I think that the overall theme is that people use the product when they're going through some kind of transitional period. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those transitional periods can be brought on by recessions. So you think of job changes, foreclosures, layoffs, downsizing, kids moving home from college unexpectedly. All these things happen uh, during recessions and all of them are going to increase the demand for the product. So that is kind of another good data point. Um, But when it comes to the actual operating side of things, it's really interesting. Um, One of my challenges with single family is that the difference between owning two or the advantages you get between owning two properties and owning 2,000 is uh, basically not really that consequential. The economies of scale, the scalability, the operational, the, the amount of moving parts, it's not really significant, which is one of the benefits of the asset class, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's relatively simple, meaning that most people can buy one and own one and they have a unit. But when you look at something like self-storage, there's so many moving parts, there's so many line items that you can optimize that means that when you have a property that's not managed appropriately, you can, if you can optimize every single one of those line items, you can be very, very lucrative returns can be generated um, by simply operational prowess and yep. expertise. And so, you know, there's, I can give you a perfect example. Yeah. Um, looking at things on a risk-adjusted basis, again, very hard to argue with this. We look for properties that don't have a relationship with a truck rental company. And we can buy those properties. Um, and the day that we buy the property, we're buying them based on in-place income. The day that we buy the property, we call our contact at U-Haul or another truck rental company. They park their trucks, let's say 15 trucks, on the facility. And then we rent out those trucks to tenants as they're moving their things. It's very common for people to need them. <laughs> now, we get a commission from U-Haul for facilitating that transaction. Yeah. And I have personally invested in properties where that one line item has gone from $0 a month to $3,500 a month directly to the bottom line. Yep. I love it. Pretty remarkable. Yeah. I mean, if you're looking at it on a cap rate basis, it's $600,000 of equity that you that's just exactly, created. That's exactly what I did. I multiplied really, really fast in my head. I'm like, I like this. And that that's really where I... I get excited about is being able to apply those types of strategies and, and, and finding out those little things that you can do to to build a property's value and net operating income in, in various different ways and to take that to to the next level. So I, I I'm I'm just really excited. Now I, I also know that there's a number of people listening who are probably also just as excited <laughs> listening to you right now. So what what's gonna be the best way for them to catch up with you, find out more about what you guys got going on and, and follow up? Yeah, sure. I mean, and first of all, I appreciate giving the opportunity to share that. So um, the name of the company is Cashflow Connections. And if you like podcasts and you're interested in commercial real estate, we have a real estate podcast called the Cashflow Connections Real Estate Podcast, as simple <laughs> as it can be. And I'd love to check you out on there. And if you shoot me an email at info at cashflowconnections.com, happy to shoot you a free ebook or two just to, to help educate investors, which I think it's all what it's about right now, especially those economic data points we were talking about earlier. Absolutely. Educate to dominate. That's the way I have uh, always approached things. Now, as we wind down, I've got a final question for you because I'm kind of curious to hear your answer. Um, 
there's probably a, a person or two who's listened this far, gotten excited. They maybe have reached what I like to call that uh, that precipice of a decision. They're going, you know what? I'm going to do this thing because apparently Hunter can do it. I, I, obviously, I have to start at playing poker. No, I'm just joking. But right. <laughs> I can do this thing. I can make this transition. And you know, like I know. That when we reach these moments, uh, what often happens is that we have a companion and that companion comes in the form of a voice. It's a voice that reminds us of how it didn't work last time. And are you sure? And I'm like, come on. It's, it's, it's already been over 110 months. I mean, sure, the, 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 you know the moment you put your money in, it's going straight down. I mean, all of those things are things that the voice reminds us of. And for some people, they're actually related to that voice. So my question to you is as follows. Let's pretend that this time it's going to be different. They're actually going to follow through. And, Hunter, they're going to do exactly what you said. They're going to do so in 24 to 48 hours. So, my simple question to you is, what should they do? Wow. I mean, look, here's the thing. Right now where we are in the economic cycle, the most important thing you can do is educate yourself. There are so much, so much available content out there that just puts things to shame that were eight years ago, 10 years ago when I was, you know, just getting started, took me years to get the kind of content that you can get easily by listening to 10 episodes of your program. Right. So what I would say is take a listen to um, our podcast. Um, You can also read plenty of the articles we've uh, written over the years. And, but number one thing I'd say is focus on education. Um, you can go all in on education. And the reason I say that is that you're actually going to be a better investor. Um, you don't want to have a uh, last minute withdrawal of a illiquid real estate investment that you're supposed to be holding for 10 years. That can put you in a really bad position. So I know it's kind of a generic advice, but that's what has been able you know, to, to get me to where I am. It's been focusing on education with extreme focus and um, that's it. Focus on education. Focus is the key word there. Love it. 100%. Um, and I definitely appreciate the, the energy that you're bringing to the industry and the, the creativity that it takes and uh, making a way uh, for many individuals to access something that otherwise would be very challenging uh, for all of us to, to actually do. And I appreciate you taking the time to share your knowledge, your wisdom, as well as your insight here with us today at the Cashflow Diary, sir. Yeah, I really appreciate taking the time and and really enjoy the conversation. All right, ladies and gentlemen, you know what time it is. It's time for you to move at the speed of instruction. What does that mean? It does not mean go play poker today, but it does mean get over to Cash Flow Connections. Why? Because you know you heard something. You know, you, you guys know. When I'm excited, there's a reason. Go find out more because there's a lot there for all of us to learn all of us to glean, and all of us to grow from. I told you that was going to happen, and now it is. Now it's up to you to make that next step. Remember, you can earn a lot more, but you will never out-earn your personal growth, and now you have an opportunity to go out there and become bigger, better, and badder, and all it takes is a few clicks. Ladies and gentlemen, it's been fun talking to you today. I look forward to talking to you soon. Until next time. (laughs) 